0: I had a conversation with Dan Frost earlier this week about a movie uh, called The Matrix. People have seen The Matrix, I think, came out in 1999, Keanu Reeves. Uh, If you don't know the story, the real simple version is it's set in the future. Humans have been enslaved to computers, to machines, and there's a, a physical level of that slavery, and then there's like a mental level of that slavery as well, right, kind of different things. And there's this guy named Neo, and Neo, which is an, you know, another way of spelling, one, is the one. He's the Messiah figure, okay? And he has the ability to manipulate that, um, the mental prison people are trapped in. And he dies, and he comes back to life, and then he sort of saves the day. And I kind of know where they got that story from. Um, but the end of the movie is really interesting. Uh, and if the movie ended where it ended, without any sequels, I think it would be kind of a perfect ending, So uh, I'm going to play for you the very last bit of this film. Uh, And he, Neo, the one, the Messiah figure, is going to send a message to the computers about what he's going to do. And um, just play that clip for me. I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of us. Where we go from there is a choice I leave to you. Okay, I remember when this movie came out, thinking um, that the, the ending left something to be desired, right? My, my first viewing, I wanted to see the whole story, right? I wanted to see the computers get beat up and the machines all destroyed and the humans be triumphant, and it doesn't end that way, right? It ends with the Messiah figure actually ascending to heaven, sort of the gospel's end, um, but it ends with the Messiah figure saying, hey, I, I have proven I have the ability to defeat you. I'm going to free people's minds, but there's a lot of work left to be done still. And it was only later, after the sequels came out, which were terrible, where I realized that was kind of the perfect ending, right? Because that's where the Gospels end. The Gospels end with Jesus saying, Hey, um, I have conquered death. I have shown I have the ability to defeat evil. I invite you mentally and spiritually into freedom. But the world, the physical world in which we live, still isn't quite right yet. Jesus is not reigning on earth as He does in heaven. Theologians have a word for this sort of tension. We call it the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. That already um, we see the reality of God's kingdom, but it's not yet complete. It's not yet in its fullness. As I read this story in 1 Samuel, I think this is an incredible picture for us of the already and the not yet. And remember, you know, the whole purpose of these kings ultimately is to point us towards Jesus, right? What the Messiah will look like. So we have this, this moment of already and not yet. I want to think about what the already and the not yet looks for David, what it looked like for us, and then kind of what we're supposed to do living in this tension. So let's talk about David. Um, We're told that David has already been anointed by God to be the next king of Israel. He's already slain the giant and become famous. And in this passage, we're told at least three times that the Lord is with him, right? The Lord is with him, not with Saul anymore, but with David. Um, By the way, uh, as we read some of these promises uh, that David is given, they sound like promises that we are given in Christ, right? The Lord is with you, and I am with you always until the end of the age. Uh, And then we're told that Everything David does prospers. Even when Saul tries to do bad things to him, or even when Saul tries to undermine him, David keeps succeeding. And we'll talk about this more later, but it reminds me of the promise that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. And we get already in this picture that everybody loves David except for Saul, right? Did you notice that David's i am sorry, Saul's family loves David, right? His son, Jonathan, loves David. His daughter, McCall, we'll talk about in a minute, uh, she loves David. Uh, We're we're told that the army officers and soldiers all love David, that really the whole of Israel and Judah thinks David is the cat's meow. Uh, And uh, we're told that David is doing what a king is supposed to be doing, right? David is delivering the people and um, he has literally done it in the last story by himself, right? Normally, kings stand behind the army. They send the army out to fight for them. But in the story of David and Goliath, that's not how it works, right? The, the one who is to be king fights so the army doesn't have to. There's a great picture of what Christ does for us. Even at the end of the story, right, even in the book of Revelation when Christ returns, there's this massive army with Him and a massive army against Him, and nobody does any fighting except for Jesus, it reminds me also of that um, passage in Exodus 14 where Moses tells the Israelites, the Lord will fight for you. You need only to keep still. Uh, again and again, we get this account of, of David um, going out before them and fighting with them. And that's what they love about him, right? He's being the deliverer that God designed him to be. So we, we, we have kind of this sense that David is already working out as the king, right? Uh, In all of these ways, He's doing what He's already supposed to do, and He's getting some of the rewards of that as well. Uh, And I think this is a reality for us, right? As as followers of Christ, um, we sometimes feel like we have already experienced God's kingdom, that we already live into the, the reality and the promise of who God calls us to be and who we are allowed to become And sometimes that's because we experience the presence of God, or we see God working evil into good, or uh, we see uh, the acclaim of our peers because of our faithfulness, or we get to be involved as God's deliverers. Sometimes we see the already present kingdom of God in the people around us and uh, their love and grace and compassion that reflects that of Jesus. Tom Long tells a story about a newspaper article um, that he read at one point. It was the story of the long process that families go through to adopt. And the article talked about how um, there are these incredibly long lines of people who want to adopt and much smaller numbers of sort of desirable children. There are really long waiting lists, the high legal fees, the red tape, um, all of the challenges that make adoption so difficult. Then, this same article talked about the Williams family. Uh, the Williamses were a deeply religious couple, and they had uh, adopted four children and were hoping to adopt another in the future. Uh, and they had had no delays, no waiting lists, no crazy red tape. Uh, and the reason was that all of the children the Williamses adopted were disabled. Their first son had Down syndrome. Uh, The other three, two daughters and another son, had major birth defects. All of their children were, according to the euphemism employed by the adoption agencies, difficult to place. Difficult to place. In a world where uh, almost every parent hopes of a bright and beautiful and perfect child, they intentionally sought out children that didn't fit that mold and chose to offer their love to those that no one else wanted. In the article, Mrs. Williams was quoted as saying, Our children are our greatest joy. Caring for them is what we're on this earth for. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God that he was talking about was going to come. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For in fact the kingdom of God is among you. And when we see people like the Williamses who live out that radical love of God, we see the already present kingdom of God among us. It's not a distant thing, but a present reality. But there's another side to that coin. Um, We believe, yes, God's Kingdom is already present, but it's not yet complete, right? And the not yet part can be really hard. Uh, The not yet part for David is incredibly difficult. So we we just get this great story of all the awesome things that happened to David, Um, but there's a lot of really difficult things that happened to David as well. Of course, he is quite literally not yet king. um, But beyond the the literal role of, of not yet being king. Um, He has made an enemy of the one who is king, who has more power than anyone else in his life, who will spend the next several decades making David's life difficult. And every time that um, it seems like things are going well for David, where he gets to experience, hey, I'm already living into the promise God has for my life, Saul's going to come along and undermine that. Not always successfully, um, but consistently. Uh, I I mentioned earlier um, the the story of McCall. McCall shows up in the second half of of this uh, chapter 18. McCall is one of Saul's daughters. And it's really a a, a neat story. She falls in love with David. He's this big hero. He uh, is really into her. Not sure he's worthy to become the king's son-in-law. But the king says, hey, it's okay, just go kill 100 Philistines, right? Go out and kill 100 Philistines, and then that'll be the bride price. So David, and Saul's hoping David will get killed in battle. David goes out, he kills 200 Philistines, comes back, and gets to marry McCall. Another one of these moments where everything seems to be going well for him. But it's another place where things are going to go wrong as well. It's going to be part of the not yet as well as the already. See, what's going to happen for David is uh, in the very near future, he's going to lose his station as the war leader of Israel. He's going to lose his responsibility of, of leading the thousand and of being this famous war hero. Some of the friends that he's made will die when they choose to support him instead of siding with Saul. Ultimately, David is going to, to flee for his life with almost nothing, and he's going to end up leaving his own country, having to hide with his former enemies. And while he's gone, the the wife that he loved is going to be given to another man to be her husband. And by the way, when when his enemy finally dies, when Saul finally is killed in battle, David's best friend Jonathan is going to die on that same day as well. And you got to imagine if you're David, you say, boy, look at all the great promises God's given me and all the ways I've already seen fruit of those. But boy, there's a lot of the not yet. There's a lot of the suffering in this world that seems so rampant and obvious. And we see this today. We see evil victorious. We see, we see suffering increasing. Maybe you've been paying attention to what's been going on in Haiti over the last few days, but I think most people are aware the president of Haiti was assassinated. Now, before this, Haiti was a disaster, right? And, and we have a special love for Haiti because of our missionary and our, our experience there in Haiti, and we have been talking for years about wanting to get back there, and every year it feels like another page turns and things get worse. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's a disease or it's social unrest or it's political violence. Um, right now they say 30 to 60 percent of Haiti is under the control of uh, the gangs rather than the government, Um, There is a huge amount of kidnapping for ransom. Um, And our friends, Solanto and um, Pastor Claude Ney and um, the kids and teachers at the Mission Starfish School have been overwhelmingly affected by this tragedy. It just keeps going and going and going. Um, And I got to imagine... Um, they're not feeling the already as much as they're feeling the not yet. So here's why this is so important. What do we do as a people who recognize that God's kingdom is an already reality and and yet not yet here in its fullness? um, What do we do? How are we called to respond? I think we're called to respond like Jonathan and John. See, I think our purpose is to recognize um, that we are those who, who point to what is to come. I don't know if you noticed this, but it's a really interesting moment at the beginning of, of chapter 18 when David and Jonathan talk and Jonathan's soul is bound to David's soul and he gives him his armor and his weapons. It's kind of this weird moment, right? So if you remember uh, in, in the previous chapter, the story of Goliath, Saul, the king, gives his armor and weapons to David. David gives them back, right? He says, no, I can't use them. Um, Because David's not going to take Saul's place. Whose place is he going to take? He's going to take Jonathan's place, right? He's going to be the heir to the throne. And so the very next story, Jonathan gives him the symbols of his office, right? The armor and the weapons that only David and Jonathan, I'm sorry, only Saul and Jonathan have, right? We've just read earlier that most Israelites are fighting in, you know, T-shirts and with pitchforks. Uh, But the king and his son have these symbols of royal authority and power, and and Jonathan takes them off, and he gives them to David, and he says, uh, I think you are the one God's calling to lead our people. We get this same conversation with John the Baptist, right, who he says, uh, I must decrease, Christ must increase. And this is the work of the people of God. It's to say, um, yeah, we know we live in the already and the not yet, but let me tell you about the already. Let me point you towards the coming kingdom of God. Let me be one who prepares the way for the Lord. Knowing that in whatever I do, Christ is working. And no matter how much the world opposes God's plans, uh, they will succeed. In fact, the more the world opposes, the more successful God's plans will be. We see this uh, in the story of David quite clearly, right? The more Saul opposes David, the more successful David seems to become. It's a a consistent message of Scripture. We see it with Joseph when he's sold into slavery by his brothers. We see it um, with Pharaoh. And during the Exodus story, we, we see it with Jesus, right, where the enemy thought they could defeat him by humiliating him and executing him. And it turns out through that, Jesus works his greatest victory, uh, another story of of um, of God working good out of evil, of our lives being um, the the work of preparation for God's kingdom, comes from a, a guy uh, named Dr. John Perkins. Uh, Dr. Perkins was a pastor a, in Mississippi and a civil rights leader. And in 1970, uh, he had an experience in February where two vans of students, African American students, were coming back from a protest. One of the vans was pulled over as it crossed county lines. The other was let go. Uh, Dr. Perkins and another pastor um, went to the jail to post bond for those students. And he said even as he went, he had a sense this might be a trap, right? Why take one van and not both vans? Uh, they, they show up um, in the parking lot and they're met, the, Dr. Perkins and the two other pastors, they're met by a dozen highway patrolmen. Um, where they are assaulted right there in the parking lot and then dragged inside where the beatings continued. Later on in the court trial, Perkins described the scene. He said, quote, when I got to the jail and saw the people in jail, of course I was horrified as to why we were were arrested. And when I got in that jail, Sheriff Jonathan Edwards came right over to me and said, this is the smart, can't say that word, and this is a new ball game. You're not in Simpson County now. You're in Brandon. He began to beat me, and from that time on, they continued beating me. Perkins talks about um, the violence uh, in that moment as he's surrounded by these people. And then he said, quote, For the first time, I saw what hate had done to these people. These policemen were poor. They saw themselves as failures. The only way they knew how to find a sense of worth was by beating us. Their racism made them feel like somebody. When I saw that, I just couldn't hate back. I could only pity them. I said to God that night, God, if you will get me out of this jail alive, I really want to preach a gospel that will heal these people too. Well, although the students who watched over me through the night in that jail cell were sure for a while I was dead or about to die, I came out alive and with a new call. My new call was to preach the gospel to white people as well. Dr. Perkins goes on to talk about in his life what a a pivotal moment this was, how God opened him up to the potential to work in ways he had never imagined before because what they intended for evil, God intended for good. Once Jesus was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God was coming, and he answered, the kingdom of God is not coming with things that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, for in fact, the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is among you. It's among all those who trust and believe in the coming kingdom, so much so that they are willing to live their lives as those who prepare the way for Him, like a Jonathan, like a John, like a Dr. Perkins. And we are the bridge, right? We are the bridge between the already and the not yet. We are those who prepare the way, who invite enemies to be friends and strangers to be family, and friends and family to experience the present already of God, even as they endure the hardships of the not yet. This is our call today. It's to be Jonathan, to be John, to prepare the way for the Lord, and among us find the kingdom of God. Thanks be to him. Amen.